to speak. It's always just a profound uh, privilege to speak at an AA meeting. Um, just because being sober is a gift and it's a privilege. It's, it's, you know, just the fact that I'm sober today and able to show up and speak at a meeting is, um, I don't ever want to minimize that. Um, so I learned the way to sort of do a long share or where I come from, sometimes they call it a qualification, um, is to make sure you touch on what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So for me, that's kind of like, what the heck was going on when I was a drunk? What made me get sober? What was that like? And then what is it like today where I live in recovery? Um, and I, on a good day, am practicing these principles in all of my affairs. But I got sober in 2007. So it's been a while. And it's really important to remember to, to have this opportunity to tell this story because um, it's easy to feel like I'm 13 years from a drink, but I'm actually just like one day at a time away from a drink because at 13 years, I've seen friends relapse in ways that are unimaginably tragic. Um, I've had people just kind of disappear and I've definitely had friends die from this disease. Um, and yeah, so, uh, and people who, it's kind of like you turn your head, you don't see them in a meeting for a couple weeks and, and then you hear that, you know, in, in my friend's case, shot himself in the head. Like, um, it's important to check up on people that you don't see at meetings. I don't, I don't think, I don't want to undervalue that sort of reaching out. If you see it, if you think, hey, where's my friend I usually see at this meeting? It's the holidays. I had, when I got sober in New York City, this guy, this guy every winter would say, it's, it's hurricane season for alcoholics. You got Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And he would say that every year and it would really annoy me, but it's true. And I like to repeat it because we can forget how hard the holidays can be, especially if we used to drink through them like I did. So yeah, I got sober in New York City, 2007. I basically moved to New York City so that I could drink more efficiently and more safely because I grew up in the Midwest in Michigan. Um, and so I learned to drink, you know, underneath bleachers at football games and um just trying to be cool because i'm actually a big big nerd like super nerd and uh i just kind of wanted you know glasses and braces and the whole thing and as soon as i could like start when i realized that if i smoked and i drank that like people might you know look at me as like a female then i just like that was my key you know i'm gonna be a party girl i'm gonna be like a secret party girl how fun is that um, so I was just off to the races. As soon as I realized that I could drink on the weekends and kind of have this, you know, alter ego, I suppose I felt like, um, I had it figured out. I was very strategic. I wanted to, um, 
not drink my way out of college. That was really important to me was to graduate college. And so I didn't want to drink my way out of college. So I made a habit of getting really drunk regularly in high school and at my summer job because I wanted to be able to like know how to manage my hangovers. And I, I used to drink really hard. I was a waitress um, in a summer community and I used to drink really hard and be able to show up at six in the morning, hung 17, 18. Um, but I really, it's like, I kind of was always testing my limits and uh, the community I worked in, I also like to describe as like the movie Dirty Dancing, but I was like the, the Patrick Swayze people, you know, I was like the, the ha come and have a good time and come to our party. And we're like the, the, st the people who actually vacation here, I think we're scum. Um, but that was, you know, that was also allowed me to live out that kind of fantasy. Like I was a, like, I was a bad girl, but I really wasn't because I worked in a cute little Christian community restaurant. Um, but yeah, so that kind of set me up well to go to college. And that was like the first, I was, I went to college in New York, not New York city, but New York state. And it was like, I was the first time I'd been so far from home. I was the only person I knew there. And so the only thing I could do to settle my nerves was to start going to parties and smoking weed and smoke, you know, just suddenly like dive back into that. Like I, I couldn't, I wasn't able to use that opportunity to like thrive as an intellectual, as I might've hoped in college. I was just like time to just become the girl that yes, within the first week of school got so shit faced that a door was opened on my face. I was knocked out, bleeding all over the place, you know, no cell phones. Cause this is like in the nineties <laughs> and I, you know, I was a total mess, but I, but I just kind of thought, well, everything that happened, I felt like was kind of like a badge, you know? Um, so I did fine. I didn't drink myself out of college, but I choice which was marijuana the big pothead and um i like to say that my boyfriend that i eventually had through all of college was a part of the distribution process i would never call him a drug dealer but he definitely you know was it he was definitely i didn't understand that's the other thing i didn't understand that i had a problem with marijuana because it was just always around and my boyfriend was part of the distribution process so everyone wanted to get me high and I never had to buy weed. I just didn't even understand until we broke up and I like needed to get high that people actually paid for weed. Um, it was just, it was very bad because I was, that was really my drug of choice. And that was really, really, really my downfall um, is that addiction that need to be just a little high. And then a balancing of like, I need to be a little high, but in order for me to be not get too high, I have to be drunk also. And at some point I had pills to, to balance in there. So I just had this great little, little, you know, I was my own little scientist pharmacist working out how to manage my state, you know? Um, and the crazy thing is, is that like state of like, okay and receptive to the good things in the world right now that is actually my serenity like that is actually how i feel it's just i was i was always like pulling all the the ropes and stuff but also i it's important to mention that i am a 
dual diagnosis addict and I am bipolar. I think that's always important to mention because it's something that I carry a lot of shame around. I was diagnosed in college and it just, there was just a different sort of public perception, you know, almost 20, you know, over 20 years ago with uh, bipolar disorder. It was very scary for me and I didn't realize how dangerous it was. So when I was first in a psych ward for having an, you know, episode and they sat me down and said, you cannot smoke marijuana. Like you have something wrong with your brain and you cannot smoke marijuana or you may die. Or they didn't say that, but they said, you know, like you're bipolar and you can't smoke weed. Um, you know, and that was sort of like a test of like, is this girl an addict? Because <laughs> someone who understands that like doing this drug is unpredictable and could tip you into chaos wouldn't do it. But the minute I have a little taste of that high, the nature of addiction is that it produces the phenomenon of craving. So it doesn't matter how bad it might may be for me. I just want more. I just want more. I want more of that feeling. Um, and so when they said that to me in the hospital, that was like 1998, maybe. I, it just went in one ear and out the other. It was like, okay, thank you very much. You have no idea what it's like to be a college student. There's no way I'm not smoking weed anymore. Like this is a joke, you know? So that's what it was. And that's how I treated it. Um, and I sort of fumbled through, you know? Um, I think that uh, bipolar can sometimes be a progressive as can, you know, addiction. So at some point they just kind of caught up with each other uh, for me, but I, I graduated, you know, and then I, I went into, uh, I moved to Cleveland to do a master's program and like, I didn't have any real relationships there that didn't involve drugs. Like everyone in my life was someone who, like, I can remember their faces, but mostly I remember that, like, I just had, like, that I just kind of had to hang out with them until we got high. And I, and I remember when I knew I needed to move from there, and I didn't, it's like, I didn't even want to acknowledge that they were people or that we were friends. I just wanted to leave. And I know I got a little, you know, people, people kind of be like, what's wrong with you? Or why are you being like this? Or what's, and I just thought, God, don't you get it? Like, you're not a person to me. You're just a source. Um, you know, I am, it's, it's, I, I, I have compassion for that version of myself now, but I also think she's pretty gross. You know, I don't want to be like that anymore. So from there, you know, I got some other job and then I moved to, um, yeah, then, at, then I was in Columbus, Ohio. And it was like, there I was really like, there was also sort of fiercely by myself and mostly drinking a lot because I worked in politics and it was important to drink a lot with people like four nights a week, we'd go up to receptions and everything was paid for all the drinks were paid for. You know, I'm like, what cute little 22 year old thing and like these old lobbyists are like you know buying me drinks and stuff and it's like 
you know, I was just loving it because I was just free alcohol all the time. And again, I was like testing my limits. How drunk can I be and still show up for work in the morning? And at that age and at that time and at that point in my illness, it was pretty seamless. It was pretty great. But I was doing a lot of drunk driving and I was doing a lot of winding up with people and in places that I didn't remember. I wouldn't say I'm a blackout drinker, but I would say there's a lot of gray and brown um, and a lot of like phone calls the next day, like, ooh, I'm really, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know what I did, but it was probably terrible. Um, yeah, it's like, I, as I'm saying this, as I'm remembering, my whole body is tense and it's just like, it's, it's hard to uh, remember that part of my lifestyle because I think the difference is when you're in recovery and when you're an addict is like you look back on that stuff and it's it's not, at a certain point it's not like it was fun and cute and young it was terrible um and uh even though it's sort of easy to paint with a broad stroke and say it was glamorous in some way but I was such a I was such a frequent drunk driver and um and then I had a really crazy thing happen there. I was assaulted in my own apartment, not by, not by, not anything to do with drinking, just like a, a crazy guy. Was, anyway, I mean, he was, he was my neighbor, but I didn't know him. And he was, um, a, he was beating up his uh, girlfriend partner and I had never met her, but she was knocking on my door screaming for her life and so I opened the door and I just thought oh I'm a savior I open the door pull this girl in her face is all bloody and torn up and like I lock the door and I'm like it's everything's fine now you're safe this guy busts through my door with like all sorts of implements and like it was the most terrifying thing I take this girl we run in my bathroom close three doors and and I'm just terrified he finally gets in through all that the cops have to get him and it was so terrifying, the single most terrifying experience of my life. Um, and my thought was, well, if this can happen in Columbus, Ohio, I'm moving to New York City <laughs> because that's where I'll really have fun. You know, like this happened in my house and this is a bunch of bullshit because I wasn't even drunk. Like it kind of for me was also sort of like, well, I'm going to go live a higher risk lifestyle now. Um, it was terrifying though, but it also, I think, um, it was also, I had a boyfriend at the time there and when he was trying to help me pick up the pieces of that, you know, my door all pasted shut and everything, his solution was like, he brought me a bunch of alcohol. He didn't know, he wasn't like, let's process this or like, do you feel safe? He was like, here's a six pack. I don't know. And that was just sort of, that made sense to me too. I just thought, yeah, I just need to get real drunk. Um, so that, that's kind of random, but it does really shape sort of some of my justifications for moving to New York when I did. And then when I was there, I just felt so free. So much, all the time. And the bars closed at 4 a.m. And I could way everywhere um and I just felt no one there was no one really like judging my behavior so I I drank heavily and enjoyed my lifestyle there for three years 
I really, you know, I really, um, I really lived it to the fullest, I suppose, that lifestyle. I had a great job and I um, supported that lifestyle, but then um, uh, but then it's like there, there's a few big events that led to like my bottom. So I almost feel like it's not a single bottom, it's sort of like skipping the bottom a few times, but one was certainly I um, fell off a skateboard. My cousin is, lives in New York and he's like a professional skateboarder, or he was for a while, and I did not a skateboard, but I thought I could really drunk, and I broke my wrist off his skateboard. And, um, you know, I just, I just, I was so drunk, I didn't even feel it. And so I went to the bar because I thought that was a, that, you know, the, the bar that I had just been in, broke my wrist, went back and I had a, and I ordered a drink and I was like, oh, my hand's really screwed up, had a drink. And then I threw up and I never threw up. I never threw up from drinking. And I was just like, this is really messed up, you know, and I didn't even feel that drunk, but I guess that was from the adrenaline. Like that's because my hand was so screwed up that the pain, something, science, and that happened. Um, I just, uh, yeah, that, and then I leveraged that broken wrist as an opportunity to go on disability and have more drugs and just be home drunk and drugged out every day. Pills, weed, everything. I went on disability from my job because I couldn't use my hand. And I, it was just like nonstop. I just wanted to be wasted. And, um, when I finally got, and then, and then I went out to, I went out with a friend. He was, he had some ketamine. I had no idea like even what that was, but we decided to snort it. Actually, he decided that I should snort it and he like just got on top of me and plugged my nose and put it under my nose, like told me to snort. But then like, if you're an addict and once you do that, it was so, I just kept, wanted to keep doing it. And that's all I did for, I don't even know, like three days or something. And then um, that led me to the psych ward because I just, I like pretty much wandered into a hospital in New York City and was like, I think I wanna die. Cause I would just knew that I, I, kn I knew enough that I was like a danger to myself, that I wanted to step out in front of traffic, that it, I was just so depleted. Um, so I spent a week in that hospital at Lenox Hill in New York City. And this is like in 2006. And that is where I went to my first AA meeting. Um, in Lenox Hill Hospital, they said you, you, cause they were like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I have no idea. I just feel terrible. It took like three different doctors interviewing me for me to remember that I had done all this ketamine and that, that I had no connection to like, my behavior and the way I felt that like I had been doing drugs for three days in New Jersey and I had no idea why I suddenly felt so off. Um, so they put, so they said, you need to go to this AA meeting. And I was like, this is a joke. You know, I'd been to that recovery thing when I was diagnosed years ago and and I just sat in that meeting, such an asshole. And like, God bless anyone who says this shit in a meeting. But like, <laughs> I sat in that meeting 
pissed off because my psychiatrist who prescribed me pills like they were candy, he's like, just do whatever they say, go to the meeting, whatever. I sat in the meeting and I said, I'm Katie and I'm just Irish. Like that was, I wouldn't even consider that I was alcoholic. I was like, fuck you, you have a drinking problem. I'm like genetically manifested to process alcohol, you know, just such a jerk. So, um, but the crazy thing is I knew I was miserable and I knew craziest thing, just the most insane thing is that this woman speaking in that meeting, it was like, I can remember like this little, little sunshine in a, you know, in a dark room, I can just remember this little thing, like it's like the sound of her voice when she was talking about the fact that she was happy, I believed her. And it's like I had not, it's like the people in my life, the stuff I was doing, that it, there was something authentic about her being happy with her life that I believed her. It's like I had forgotten what honesty sounded like. And, um, and that was enough people, that was enough to plant a seed for me. That's why hospitals and institution meeting stuff, like that saves lives. That gave me my life, that seed. Now I got out of the hospital and went out drinking for another year. <laughs> it made a big mess of things, but it was that seed that a year later, when I was again, like just a total, just in a, in a really messy spot, you know, just, I can't, you know, my bottom is so foggy because I was also in the midst of a manic episode. And like, I was in some, I don't even, I, I say he was my boyfriend, but like, I also think I was just like holding him hostage in his own apartment. <laughs> you know, I would just show up there. I would just show up, he'd go to work and I wouldn't leave, you know? Um, it was really bad. He was nice, you know? Um, or he just wasn't, but he was like, you're an alcoholic, you need help. And he did not really have a, really have a lot of um, language for stuff, but he would put on, and this is when it was a big hit, Amy Winehouse's um, rehab song and he would just sit me down while he like ironed my clothes for work and made me breakfast and I was all ridiculous and put that song on VH1 so I could like watch it. He, that was him telling me like, I think you need to go to rehab. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just kind of like, you know, I just eventually, uh, I just kind of fell apart one day fell apart. I was, you know, running in Central Park and I like, you know, just uh, was out of my mind. I don't know. I like, I was literally like in the dirt, like fell down after a 10K race. I was registered in the dirt, like clawing through the dirt, just kind of out of my mind. And he came and got me. And then I'll like, I don't know, these things may be out of order, but we somehow ended up my, at my friend Hillary's apartment. My friend Hillary is um, a friend of 32 years. Um, and so she's one of my best friends. Somehow I ended up at her place and she's like, I don't know what to do. And I said, and I said, 
I think I need to go to an AA meeting. So we start looking them up. Like that, I really, I really had no, I don't even know where that came from, where that idea that that mess I was in a year later, that that little seed would then be like, I think I don't know what else to do in the world. Go to an AA meeting. And the good news is, you know, uh, folks are always welcome in my exact state in an AA meeting, you know, and I didn't actually get to a meeting right away, but that impulse kept it sort of um, in sight for me. And then I did go to a, an outpatient rehab, you know, really strict in terms of like um, chemical testing and stuff every, every day, um, you know, piss test, uh, uh, breathalyzer and then um, and then it was like there was it was a it was a fancy program at a fancy hospital in New York and um, they had like a a program that was like not ex it was kind of abstinence based but it was therapeutic and it was like for people for a lot of people who AA didn't work for you know my insurance was paying for it but I mean like some of these people were, were lived in a world that I um, could not relate to, you know, um, with really fancy cars and drivers and stuff. And, you know, but they were, they were not really, they had tried AA, it wasn't really working for them. They didn't necessarily need an abstinence program. It was like exploring other stuff, but I, I decided in that program that I would prove that I was not an alcoholic. Cause even though I had that like impulse to go to AA, it's not like you just come in and it fits, you know, necessarily, because that's why people go in and out and we talk ourselves out of having this illness. And like, that's the nasty, gnarly part of it. So I go um, to this thing and, and I really didn't want to stop drinking once I was in that facility and program. So I thought, I'm going to prove to all of you that I'm not an alcoholic by not drinking for 90 days. So I went to that program for 90 days and did not drink, but I was like white knuckling. I had no program. There was no recovery. There was no like sponsorship, mentorship. People weren't s telling their stories. You know, it was just these rich people and their lives that I didn't understand. And I was just like, just, I just don't need to be in the substance abuse part of this. I don't have these problems. Let me out. So I like get through those 90 days by some miracle and decide that my life was a little better. And I thought, well, I'm going to give this a shot for a year. I'm going to try and stop drinking for a year. And I just imagine like within a year of not drinking that I would have like my corner office, I would have a husband, I would have like silk. And I was already calculating at that year mark celebration, all the drinks I would have. And that's, that's one of the things for me why, why I know I'm definitely an addict is it's like the, when I, <laughs> that, that when I was planning to stop drinking, I was already planning the celebration I would have at the end of a year, which would be complete intoxication. Um, so it was really, it was really warped. And I kind of, I knew one other girl in my, in my group therapy that had mentioned AA, 
you know, and so I'm coming on the end of this three months and deciding that I do kind of want to not drink for a while. And I asked her, because we, my friend and I never found that AA meeting. We like looked and then I went to the hospital. And so I go over to this girl, I'm like, oh, hey, like you mentioned AA different times. And you said once you were sober for eight months. And that sounded insane to me. I was like, who would be sober for eight months? <laughs> she was talking about it. And like, I don't know why she remembered all this time and everything. And I said, do they still have those meetings like that you go to in New York? And sigh and was like, I don't go to AA anymore, but I have to take you because AA gave me so much that if so, I'm like, I'm committed to anyone who asks for help related to AA that I would take them. So she's like, I'll take you. I'll find a meeting for us. We'll go. She's like, when do you want to go? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, afternoon, evening. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Because in New York, the AA meeting book, and this is like, there was nothing online. It was like a, it was like a pamphlet of all the meetings. And um, so we went. So my first actual out of the hospital AA meeting was, um, it was uh, like a 200 person meeting in Soho. And uh, it was like really intimidating, but they said, you know, is anyone new here or at their first meeting? And she like nudged me and she's like, this is when you stand up. And so, and I get up and I'm like, um, I'm Katie. And like, I don't think I was saying, and I was, uh, I was an alcoholic at that point, but I was just like, this is my first meeting. And this is my first time here. And it blew my mind to have a room of 200 people applaud me for just saying I was there and for not drinking. And I sort of like, it's kind of like I was sold, you know? I was like, I don't know what this is, but I feel like not drinking is punishment and you guys feel like it's a celebration. So I drink for various reasons, you know? You know, I had also lost jobs and relationships. You know, I took all those, a lot of those boxes, but it was pretty high bottom in that sex. So I, I, I started going to meetings and I came in after I'd been, you know, kind of a, kind of a dry drunk for three months. It was tough to get connected. Um, cause, but in New York, you count your days. So people count their days one to 90 in New York. And I didn't do that, but now, um, you know, but I, I made my way through and I went to a meeting where um, uh, this woman's meeting, they were like, oh, well, you know, newcomers are the most important people in the room. And I got pissed off one day. And I said, you know, I'm new and I don't feel very important in this meeting. <laughs> so, so they came and got me and then they took me that this one girl said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, because they were a very small meeting. They were all like they were very into themselves. And I was just a kind of a, you know, skeevy person sitting in the back. So this one girl, she said, oh, you live in Brooklyn. Let me show you the meetings I go to in Brooklyn. She committed to going to that meeting with me. And I was so shocked when she actually showed up. And that's the big thing of like what it's like now for me is I actually, I show up, you know? And if I, if I don't show up, I at least feel really bad about it, you know? Um, so, so then, you know, so I was, so I count, that time where like I went my my old 
boyfriend sort of guy took me to get uh, to the hospital. You know, my last drink was like in that foggy couple of days. I don't remember my last drink, but that was, but the race that I was running when I was crawling around in the dirt like a weirdo, um, that was June 9th in 2007. So that's the sobriety date I, I call for myself. And then, you know, took, and I tell my sponsee who I love and love and love, I say, you know what? I'm like a D student in AA. I just don't drink. I go to meetings. I try to have a sponsor. I try to work the steps. I do my best, but like, you just like, D student, you just gotta pass. You just gotta like hang in there. You know, as, as long as I've been doing this, it's like there, there's ups and downs. You just kinda, just kinda gotta hang on. Um, but, so I say that because it took me a long time to start working with a sponsor, about a year before I would actually start working with a sponsor seriously, because I was very skeptical. I still was very certain it was a cult. Not that I'm like opposed to cults because I've enjoyed being sort of cult adjacent in like yoga communities and other things, but it's just like, for some reason, like God being involved was really upsetting to me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just kind of surrendered again and again. And um and working with a sponsor and working through the 12 steps, like it took me a long time, but I got there and the promises are definitely, have just definitely come true in my life. I mean, so I left New York City to go to grad school um, in Boston and I never thought I'd leave New York. I was sober for the, there for three years. Then I went to Boston for three years. Um, got a degree I was just like beyond my wildest dreams excited about. It's like, I don't even know how I got there, but I'm so happy I did. All of it, all along the way, meeting new sponsors, every new place I go, you know, a new meeting, a new community, because it's this big sort of universal community. And then um, from Boston, I ended up going to India. I got this fellowship to do this language study in India for a year. So that was amazing. And then in India for a whole year, I was going to meetings in India in Hindi and I spoke very little Hindi and I was terrified, but it was like the magic still happened. It was just like, it was me and mostly these like Punjabi guys. And they were like, just like thought I was, they were so nice to me, you know, I felt really um, protected. And uh, we couldn't necessarily understand each other, but you know, it was, the message was there. And, the, and over there, it's fun. Cause they were like, you are from the land of AA. <laughs> cause they love, they knew AA started in the United States. This guy's like, I'm going to go to Akron, Ohio someday for the big pilgrimage. So I spent a lot of, so that was, uh, like my fourth year of sobriety. And then uh, from there, I decided to come to Austin to do a PhD program, which is the dream that I had when I was 20 years old. And then I just thought would never come true. And then I started it when I was, um, I don't know how old I am, 30 something. And I'm 42 now. I just have been doing this degree for seems like 
a long time. Um, but I always wanted to do that. It was, it was a dream that I thought would never come true. And I never thought it would like come back around. But then it came back around in a better and more beautiful, more meaningful way than I could have planned when I wanted to do it when I was 19, just because, you know, so the, the program just, um, so much of it for me is my higher power. So much of it is this like slowly unfolding realization that I can have a relationship with a higher power and that I can feel safe, taken care of, and okay. Um, you know, that's, that's like, that's the miracle running under all of this for me is, is higher power. So I don't want to diminish that, but I also think that um, there's a lot of moments where I, I could spend 40 minutes just talking about my relationship to my higher power, but I don't think that that's, that's necessarily the best way to go. I also want to say, I'll just wrap up. Um, uh, so I'm at home in my, at my parents' house in Ohio right now. I was able to come home here and um, show up to be with my mom who is diagnosed with cancer relatively recently and she's undergoing chemotherapy. And I've heard people say this in the program before like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm sober because I, I could really show up for this. And it's like, I always thought, well, that sounds like kind of a bummer to go sh show up for like a sick parent. And, but I just a thousand percent get it now. It's a complete gift. I'm so, I'm, it's a gift and a privilege to be here. It's as an active alcoholic. And it's also exactly what I want to be doing. Like that's the miracle of it. It's not that it's like I can show up and be a good daughter. It's like, it's actually what I want to be doing. There's nothing I'd rather be doing. Um, and it, and so that's a gift to the program. And then, um, yeah, just then my friend, I, I was mentioning to John in the beginning that my friend um, from my home group, Lauren O, if anyone knows her, um, two weeks ago was hit by a car. And she is in, at Del Seton, she's one of my best friends, and she's in pieces, um, literal pieces. Uh, and I've been able to show up for our friends and her and her family dealing not dealing with someone else's family you know that's a whole other thing that's a whole other level of patience um but it's incredible to if you haven't had the privilege it's incredible to watch the recovery community descend upon a person in need it's absolutely mind-blowing like if you stick around for nothing else stick around to 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 watch people get helped by the community that is, if you don't believe in a higher power, like that is God in action. If I didn't need, you know, if I didn't, it, like it's, it's hard to describe, like in her family calling us and being like, we can't believe that the recovery community is so helpful. It's just like, what do you need? What do we got? We got it. Da, 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 and we're just all there. Um, it's not, it's, it, it's a real privilege to be a part of this program for sure. And I'll wrap it up because I think I'm just about at time.
So that's all I got for you guys. But thank you thank so you much. much.